0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. Life gets really simple when you take initiative. People before they take initiative, they're like, oh, I have this, I have that. I have three different things I want to do. I have 10 different things I want to do. And boy, does our dog show culture and school. It surrounds us with the more things on your resume, the better, the more... In college, the more extracurriculars you do, the better. The more clubs that you're a member of, the better. Because the more stuff on your resume, the better. Look at successful people. Very rarely are they doing a million different things. They do usually one thing. You know, they have different realms of their life. So one professional thing, one family thing. But they really dedicate themselves to excellence in one area, and they put everything else off in order to do that thing. And our culture promotes. They don't think of it this way, but it's like being a dilettante and spreading yourself thin, and just doing as many different things as you can. And that is rarely a path to success by almost any measure, whether it's money or happiness or deep, meaningful relationships. This got me going. I mean, it's really, it, it kills me that we teach people to just pursue shiny objects and not learn themselves. Glad to be here again. It's, uh, yeah, I have to say you were one of the early people supporting me when I went in this direction. So thank you for having me again. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You
2: know, I I think that, you know, the first time we had you, I found our conversation incredibly intriguing. I know that, you know, you're a combination of both an academic and an entrepreneur, which I think you kind of have this really cool dichotomy that allows us to explore the subject matter in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. But before we get into the new book that you wrote, um, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that
1: shape and influence who you've become and what you've done with your life? My dad was a history or is a history professor, now emeritus. So he teaches uh, third world urbanization with a specialty, very much of the city of Ahmedabad in India. Mm. And he grew up in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh was a mill town of steel mills. And Ahmedabad is a mill town of textile, well, it was. And actually they're both switching over to being more techie. Uh, My mom... When I was born was, I, I guess you would say a housewife, but then after they got divorced, she did a lot of sales type. She went into real estate, then she sold uh, telephone type equipment, then she went into training people to be real estate uh, brokers and get licenses. And how did it affect me? I mean, my dad weighs heavily on me, but it's not from the business side of things. I, I, I had a very high view of academia for a long time in my life. I thought, you know, university, like the top of a university is the top of the world. Just because I didn't know anything outside of it. Yeah. No. And looking back now, my mom's entrepreneurial, you know, just going out and, and doing it, that I didn't notice it at the time. You know, when I noticed it, <laughs> not growing up, when my company was almost bankrupt <laughs> and she put me in touch with people who's com- well, I didn't know this until I, they'd say, they'd say things that were very understanding. And I felt like, wow, this person really gets it. And then I found out, oh, they almost went bankrupt too. And that, you know, that, I got it was a really difficult time and I got much closer to my mom at that time because of that background. So it took a little while for that business side of things to kick in. Yeah. What what was the the message they gave you about education
2: growing up? Like what did your parents teach you about education?
1: It's well, certainly I should they valued it. They encouraged me to get as far as I could with it. They said it was um, you know, I think my dad, he he I mean, he has a PhD and is a professor. So for him, it was a very, like, that's what you do. You go to school, you get a degree. And it made me think like the, a PhD was the highest thing you could do in life. Now, I mean, now I look at PhD, I have a PhD, but I look around at most people with PhDs aren't pr- particularly practical. Yeah. And so now I've developed a, disdain is too strong of a word, but, you know, skepticism for um, academic stuff. And I never felt like it had to connect with life. It was really just um, abstract learning and learning for the sake of learning, which is nice. But now, I mean, there's a big shift in my life later, which was to, for it to be usable and meaningful and changing behavior and connecting me with others. But that's not exactly what you asked. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, you know... uh,
2: Did they give you any sort of underlying message beyond going as high as you can in terms of education about how to make your way in the world? Were there any career paths that they encouraged?
1: My dad wanted me to be an architect, I think because, well, he would say you could be, (laughs) he was always like, you know, you could do anything you want. You can be anything like an architect. (laughs) And I think he didn't realize he was really pushing me in in a direction. And I started majoring in it in college, but then didn't really, it's not what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, but there was he gave a strong feeling of, if you work hard, the work will pay off. And so I always felt like, if I ever didn't really know what to do, I should at least work hard. In some ways, that paid off very well. But years later, I realized that I didn't really know how to have fun in life. And I had to learn that in my late 20s and 30s. Mm. Wow. Part of why when I spoke when I've spoken to you, I've talked about surfing, because it feels like that's, well, it came for me in sports a lot. And in music and dancing. But it's something that I, I'm still developing. I think I, I didn't have as much fun as I could have growing up. Yeah. you have brothers and sisters? I have an older sister, a younger sister. My mom remarried. So I have a stepsister who's almost the same age as me from a different set of parents. Yeah. And a stepbrother who's older. What
2: uh, career choices did they make? And then, you know, did you guys turn out wildly differently based on your parents' advice? And, Uh, What would you tell parents who are listening, particularly as somebody who is both an educator and an academic? What advice would you give to parents about talking to their kids
1: about careers and about education? Let's see. So my sister, she got two master's degrees in in international education and she was doing that for a while, but then she became a stay-at-home mom. And I always thought, what, you're throwing away these degrees, but I see her with the kids and my nieces and nephew, and she's just one of the best moms I've ever seen. And it changed my view of, of uh femininity i guess and uh and now that they're getting older you can see her getting and she doesn't have to take care of them quite as much you can see her getting back into education and things like that so i don't think she um intended to leave it forever my little sister did the peace corps after college met the man who had become her husband and they came back to the u.s she got an mba he got a a law degree and now they're back in um not the peace corps but um uh the state department and they passed the foreign service exam and they've been doing three-year stints all over the world with their two sons. Uh, my stepsister and stepbrother, weren't, were, we were close, but not as close. And she works in um, food. I think she's at Kroger and helps develop new types of foods for them. My stepbrother, he was really cool younger. And he's had his career has been more uh, blue-collar, working um, not too long at any one place. So that's been a different, his, his and mine are probably the most different of everyone's in terms of advice. When I first started teaching, education is huge for me and different styles of education mean different things to me. And I learned with, um, lecture and doing homework assignments and writing analytical papers and well, in physics, I did labs. Then when business school, there was case study and, more analysis, but a different kind of analysis that I will not teach that way anymore. I I thought I would teach lectures with the model being, I know the professor knows the student doesn't, I will give information. The student will get the information, become smart. But I moved strongly into project-based experiential active learning where students, I I help them develop a project that will, by doing the, and, and starting with empathy, I start with, why is the student here? I have to engage the student and activate my role primarily as an educator is to activate the student to do something for themselves that they care about for their own reasons. And now I have to figure out to give them direction so that they'll learn to do and to learn what is relevant for them. And uh, but then the learning comes from the action, from the doing. And many of my students say they've—I mean, I have a lot of students who say it's the best class I've ever taken. A lot of students who say, I had no idea I could learn this stuff, let alone in the classroom. Like they thought, I didn't know I could learn what I would call social and emotional skills to lead, to become an entrepreneur. Uh, and I'd love that. Now, for people who are, if you're talking K to 12, by university, people have a sense of where they want to go. K to 12, there's beyond project-based learning is what I would, it's, um, self-directed education. There's a school called, school called Sudbury Valley School in Massachusetts. And this guy, Peter Gray, who I've had on my podcast, and and they teach with no classes, no grade, no age separation, no, the students get to vote on what happens at the school with an equal vote to the, the founder. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's no rules, but it's actually a different set of rules and very well regulated. It's just the students have a say in it. And I can't, in a few words, describe what it's about, but Peter Gray has this uh, blog on psychology today. I forget what it's called, but Peter Gray, G-R-E-Y. And this book, it it just really dramatically changed how how we learn, what learning means for democracy, what democracy means for learning. And I could go on, but it's really game-changing for me to have learned what I've learned about education since starting to teach. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R.com slash podcast. A Weber. simpler email marketing.
5: Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Yeah. So, you know, one thing that you said in the book is that anxiety pervades our educational system at every level, often in proportion to meeting its goals. That's by design. The academic information schools teach is nice, but the behavior they teach is compliance. And I think that, you know, we are moving towards a world in which compliance is no longer rewarded. In fact, it's punished. And I wonder how you start to unwind this narrative, particularly in a system that is so deeply embedded into
1: our psyches. Well, how to change this, how to change a system and how to change my own classroom. So I've pondered, do I want to change the whole system? And I haven't gone for it. I think it would be a great, I would love to do it. How to change my classroom is, well, as a university professor, there's a lot more leeway that you have over, over the classroom. One, one of the big things is... I don't give grades. I have the students grade themselves and I give them a structure as to how they evaluate themselves. So it's not just like, give yourself an A. But outside of universities, outside of school, very rarely do you get a grade, almost never. I mean, maybe if you're getting a professional degree, you might take a test to show that, you know, if you're an engineer, your buildings aren't going to fall down. But it's not like you can go, and if you're uh, an entrepreneur or a salesperson, and you're going to go to some client and try to get them to buy stuff they're going to give you a standardized form and if you get a high enough score they'll buy your product it's grading makes it all it's about judgment and then you start game, gaming the system and things like that and another big thing is it's I give exercises that are you know my model for learning for how to learn a performance based an active social emotional expressive performance based field which includes all of Business that if you want to learn to perform, you practice the basics. If you want to play a musical instrument, if you want to act, if you want to be in the military, if you want to uh, all sports, you know, if you want to learn to play the piano, if you want to get to Carnegie Hall, you don't sit through lectures for years, and then at the end of it, there's this thing called commencement, and then you get to put your fingers on the keyboard. You start by playing scales, and scales didn't come out of nowhere. People had to people who knew how to play. Had to work for a long time to develop a theory and scales and so forth. But you don't, if you want someone to learn that theory, telling them the theory doesn't work nearly as much as giving them exercises that reveal the theory, and eventually they'll develop it on their own. So my students, I don't tell them the answers, I don't tell them theory, but at the end they can tell the theory as well as anyone. But they can do it because they've done it. If I do it, you know, I'm, I think I do it pretty well. You know, at the beginning it took a while to develop the right set of exercises or an effective set of exercises, but I do my best not to lecture. If asked, Mm -hmm. I'll give them some background on some things if they don't know it, because I do have more experience than most of my students. But it's really crafting what are the equivalent of, if you play tennis, you start with ground strokes. After the ground strokes, maybe you learn to go up to the net. After you learn to go, you know, way later, you learn the serve. The game begins with the serve, but you don't start the exercise. You don't start teaching them with the serve because it's hard. Same with lots Mm -hmm. of things in business. You start with basics, start with learning skills that you can build on and then eventually actually it's pretty quick that people get very advanced exercises and they do some very yeah. advanced things that even advanced people are who didn't go through this who, who might have holes in their foundation might not be able to do but when you don't have any holes in the foundation you can build really high yeah i don't know if so, it's being too abstract what i'm
2: saying no, 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 not at all. I mean, I think this makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, I've got plenty of notes on the book itself to go into getting less abstract. But before we go into all of that, you mentioned earlier that you had a, a bankruptcy and a, a failed business. One of the things I, I have always wondered is what is it that separates a person who experiences post-traumatic growth from post-traumatic stress? And, and how do you not let that you know, moment of failure determine how you're going to behave in the future uh, or really just let it break you, I guess, is where I'm going with that.
1: Well, so I would categorize it as things didn't work out. We didn't actually declare bankruptcy. We didn't get, or no, we were we forced into bankruptcy. So the company technically exists, although I was forced out from being CEO. So that wasn't exactly a grand success. But I, it's, I mean, I can tell you, this is, I don't know if this is the right answer or how helpful of an answer it is, but I needed to buy food. I needed to pay my mortgage. And I was nursing my wounds after I got, after I got I mean, you saw that this book was the first time that I shared that when they moved offices, the way that they kept me from going back in the office was they just didn't give me a key. And I was like, I felt like a puppy that had been kicked and kept going back to get kicked for more. And, but except a puppy who one day dreamed to be like the next Einstein, because the PhD is in physics for people who don't know. And the humility, I'm not the most humble man in the world by far. I've a bit more humility than I did before, but then I had like, well, that was a big lesson in it, but I had to get money, I had to make money and I had to go out and work and make some money. So before starting my first company, I was in graduate school and I had a stipend, but I was like, there wasn't an application to, I didn't apply for a job. I just got into graduate school and a PhD in physics program, there's always a stipend. And so I didn't know how to work. I didn't know what the working world was like. Um, so it was a very scary experience, but also one that I had no choice in because I didn't want to get kicked out of my apartment. And then when I was out in the world, then I worked for a couple of years in a nine to five job and I didn't like it. I mean, I, it was okay. It was cool to make more money than I ever had before. I was certainly making more money than I was taking in when I, in my own startup. Uh, of course there was no upside for me.
6: and I realized I really wanted to start more companies. And so that sent
1: me back to business school. Uh, you know, something that told me that I couldn't keep working there. I always kept trying to tell them ideas that I thought would, that would help the company. And they would always listen politely and never really do anything about it. And this one week, I had a weekly meeting with my manager. And this one week I was really angry. And so I downloaded a book and just the entire week, I just read the book. You know, I had a desk that, you know, people couldn't see what I was doing. And I just read the book and got the bare minimum work done. And the next week when I met with my manager, she said, you know, it looks like you're really getting the hang of things here. I'm glad to see that things are going well. And I was like, oh, they they just want me to do the minimum and that's actually better for them. And I couldn't do that. That wasn't right for me. Hmm. I don't know if that answered the question. Dealing with those difficult yeah. things. It's. I, you, I mean. Broadly speaking, at a high level, what I. Handling little ones early gives you the skills to handle big ones later. Mm. I think it's like developing the social emotional skills of resilience and listening. And, um, you know, when your mind says, oh, you were worse off, this is like when you feel depressed, to know that it passes. These things that. I believe what leads you to handle it is having handled it before, is developing skills on a simpler basis before so things that was stuff that i didn't learn in the classroom that's like from sports you know the team we'd we'd lose a big game or i'd get cut from a team and i still wanted to keep getting back on the field those kinds of skills were useful oh man oh i forgot to mention that those people that my mom put me in touch with that was huge mentorship knowing people have been through it before and they could laugh about it and point out that, you know, as bad as I felt, they felt it too. That's how they knew how I felt. And that helped a lot.
6: Hmm.
1: Well, well, let's do this. Let's get into
2: sort of this entire framework for initiative. Um, I think that, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at this. I think some of the things that really struck me, you know, that I, that I highlighted in the book, you said that, you know, not taking initiative leads people to passionless lives towing the line. We look at dog show winners, and I want you to explain what dog show winners are, and conclude that they must have been purebreds. We think successful people must have known their passions from the start to be able to devel- devel- devote themselves so much. So, you know, where does that whole sort of dog show thing come from? And then you actually specifically talk about myths that really kind of get in our way.
1: And can you expand
2: on what those myths are?
1: Yeah, when I left school and started my first company, when I left business uh, graduate school, physics PhD, I. In the program, I didn't know I had any options available. It's this bizarre situation where I had this super huge education and I felt like all I could do is either keep doing what I was doing and become a professor. I could go into industry and do uh, military industrial stuff. I could go to Wall Street. I didn't realize that I had the whole world out of, I could do. Once I started my first company, I, realized I could have started a company doing anything I wanted. So entrepreneurship was a huge, huge way for me to create my future it was the mid nineties and all and late nineties and all the media was about like hero CEOs and stuff like that. And I, I bought into that of, I wasn't paying attention primarily to the customers, to the employees, to the people that we had the, the contracts with. And I was trying to, I was, I, I wasn't doing what was important. I was, I was doing what was they, what the, culture around me was telling me to do. And I see a lot of people getting caught up in that. So as the book is the book version of the course that I teach at NYU, and I have all these students and they come through and a lot of them right off the bat, they, when I tell them to start a project, they pick a project that has nothing to do with their lives. And usually it's something that either it's in the headlines, like there's always a blockchain app. Maybe it'll change now. It's not quite as, I don't know blockchain apps or like they went they they want to do something that's not re- relevant to their lives and i saw after a while a lot of them would switch projects and when they switched there was like the second one more and the second one was always more connected to their lives so why are they always picking this thing that they don't like and there's all these forces out there that want them to do like they say that they're to promote entrepreneurship but they're not necessarily for the entrepreneur to learn so shark tank comes to mind there's at NYU, there's tons of business plan competitions. And I see these students, whether they're my students or not, they come up with something that might be a great project. And then they see there's this business plan competition with huge money available. And they think, oh, well, I'm going to change my business so I can scale rapidly and it can do all these things so I can get that money. That's not necessarily what they would like most. It's not necessarily what would help the customer most. It's not necessarily what would help their community most. And there's all these forces out there. And so the dog show is, I ask a lot of people if they've seen, so people listening, I don't know if people listening to this have heard, have seen the, the Westminster dog show or the movie Best in Show. Even if you haven't seen it live or, you know, if you go to YouTube, you can see a bunch of videos if, of dog shows and there's like these dog shows. I ask people, I ask people, what's it like? How would you describe the Westminster dog show? And different people put it in different ways, but oftentimes they say, oh, so they're prancing around showing off and it's, they do like little tricks or the judges evaluate them. And different people describe it in different ways. And I, I say, Is it, are they doing it for the dogs? And they say, no, no, it's for like the audience. It's for the, the advertisers. And then I say, you know, we've turned entrepreneurship in this country into the Westminster Dog Show. Huh. And almost always the person's like, oh man, yeah. <laughs> and I'm saying it a little too fast and not interactive with the people who are listening. But I don't want to say it's exactly like that, but it definitely has a lot of those elements where it's a show. and to win best hunting dog at Westminster has nothing to do with whether that dog can hunt. It has to do with whether (laughs) whether the dog matches the description written in a book somewhere of what a hunting dog should look like. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of companies that are trying to look like what they think a company is supposed to look like, not necessarily, you know, the equivalent of hunting would be, you know, getting a customer and satisfying them so they come back for more. You know, it depends on maybe it's a service or whatever. and. I really wanted to, oh, and I got to say, there are, there's a place for dog shows and for dog show entrepreneurship. Like Silicon Valley has a lot of stuff that like, there's a lot of people who fund things. And if you create a lot of enough things that look cool, sometimes one will take off. And and there's a lot of resources for that, but there are not resources for people who do not want to go in the dog show. And I include as the, the book, my editor, uh, not editor, publisher really wanted to say, wanted the word entrepreneurship on the cover. They're like that sells books, <laughs> but I wanted to make it clear that this is for yes, it's for entrepreneurs, but it's for something, it's something more general. So initiative, It could because people, you could be starting a project at work. I just got an email from a, a former student. And he's like, thank you for getting me. What was it? how do you put it? He's he started a new division because he pitched a CEO in a way that he had developed in my course. And now he runs his own division within this company where he works. Hmm.
7: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvoderm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
6: cool
3: fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company
5: offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard but now with bluehost you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique wordpress website or store right away
2: So let's talk uh, about one more theoretical piece and then get into what you call the method of initiative exercises. You talk about these seven core principles. Personality matters less than any skill you can learn. The idea of a lifetime comes once a month. Better than a great idea is an okay idea plus market feedback, flexibility, and iterations. Start where you are with what you have. Pitch and they'll judge. Ask advice and they'll help. Almost nothing inspires like helping others so much that they reward you for it. Now, obviously I just read those verbatim Give us an overview of how these all
1: work and and what role they play in initiative. I can do my best in words. Yeah. But the way these really kick in is when you do the exercises. Okay. Well, then let's do
2: that then. Let's go into the exercises specifically and talk about how how do these seven principles tie into
1: the exercises then and initiative? I mean, I write them before the exercises as guideposts, as milestones, so that as you do the exercises, they'll kick in. So- I also strongly recommend that people, whether they do it so other people can read it or just for themselves, but write your reflections about what happens when you do this exercise. And if you read the those if if just before writing your reflections, you look at those seven guideposts, you'll see them start kicking in at different times and taking on a new reality. Like for example, the early ones are about ideation and coming up with problems in in an area that's of interest to you and potential solutions. And then talking to people about them and getting advice from them in a specific way. You know, I'm, I'm saying generally now, but in the book, my goal was to write very specifically so that people aren't wondering, am I doing it right? Like when you teach someone to play scales, you don't just say like, hit the keys on the piano. You know, it's put this finger on that key, this finger on that key. It sounds very mechanical, but you want the person to develop the skills, these low level skills so that they don't have to think about it at all. And then when they do the high-level skills, they just, they can depend, they know that their hands are going to be in the right place at the right time. Likewise, these early exercises, they, I hope that people look and think, oh, this is so easy. This is too easy. Because soon they'll be doing those things in their, not in their sleep, but, you know, without thinking about it as they do the later exercises. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a lifetime comes once a month. Comes from when you start talking to people, they start giving you, if you have a rudimentary idea. And you know that idea is not worth starting a business on or starting a division on. But you ask people for advice in ways that they that motivate them to give you useful advice, you'll see that idea rapidly turn into something that people will say, When are you going to do this? Can I buy it? You know, how soon can I get it? And you'll realize: wait a minute, this this idea didn't even exist a month ago. Now people are clamoring for it. I could have done that. I could do that anytime I want. And suddenly, you lose this constraint of feeling like if this, if my idea isn't great enough, it's not going to work. And the dog show is all about, you know, most people actually, not just the dog show, the mainstream culture. If you say, I'm thinking about doing something entrepreneurial, the general first question is, Oh, what's your idea? What are you going to do? And they put this heavy weight on it. It leads to oftentimes people feel like if they lose, like if they have to hold on tight, because if it, if this one doesn't work, They might not ever have another good one, but you have to be flexible because your idea of the problem and how to solve it is different than the customers. And the customers are the ones that are going to be paying for it. So you have to understand their perspective. And if you're too rigid, too grabbing onto an idea, and like, if it doesn't work, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. You're not going to listen to them and flex with them and let it iterate. That's just one of the effects. Um, getting advice from people. It's very common. I do this all the time. I've been doing this for years and I still catch myself saying, what do you think of this? Which is asking for judgment. If you ask for judgment, people will give you judgment and it sets up a dynamic between you and the other person where they're kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the pose right now. You can't see it, but I'm like crossing my arms and looking downward. And that separates you from them. But if you ask advice, then the person will often feel like they want to help you and I, I can speak for myself that when someone asks me for advice and I give them advice, I feel like if they succeed, it's partly because of me. So I have a vested interest in their success. I, because if you succeed based on, in part, advice that I gave you, that's my advice. That's my success as well. So if you come back to me for help again, I'll, I'm more likely to help you again. Hmm. So that's why, you know, ask for advice. Ask for a judgment, you'll get it. Ask for advice, they'll probably help you and you'll get a closer working relationship.
6: Hmm.
1: Well, let's do this. Let's get into, uh, you know, the
2: actual tactical exercises. Uh, you know, can you give us an overview of what they are, how we can, and you know, how somebody listening to this could go and apply these things?
1: Yeah, I can, I'll, I can go over them quickly, all 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And it won't be enough me saying it really quickly for you to get it all to know exactly how to do all of them. Cause there's a lot of description of how to do them in low level detail. But the first one, the first one is very easy. It's write A personal essay. The it's partly to get you writing. This is the one that sounds most like a regular school activity. I just want people to write a field that's interesting to them. And it doesn't have to be the only field that's interesting to them because the first couple exercises, they, you just exercises, I just want to make sure they have some direction. And people can switch later if they want, but you have to have the direction to go in. And I also want people to write the names of people that they look up to and that they might have access to in that field. The next exercise is to write down five problems in that field And to try to write down some rudimentary solutions, you definitely have to write the problems. The solutions aren't as necessary. And this is not, this is not to make a big presentation. This is just to write down a couple sentences for each and then go to five different people that you know that support you and to ask them for advice on each of them and a vote, which one did they like the most. And after that, I'm actually, I'm not saying clearly like this, uh, this is now the, I think the, the second exercise that I'm talking about. And ask them, which one do you like the most? And how could I improve any of them? And at the end of talking to five people, you'll generally get a sense of which one you want to work on the most. So pick that one. And so the output of the second exercise is a problem and a solution that are rudimentary. And the people you asked probably aren't the best people in the world to ask because they're probably not into your field. But the point of talking to them is not to get the best advice just yet. It's to get the skills of getting advice and How to handle it when you say, Can you give me some advice? And they say, I think it's great, go for it. And you have to say, Okay, I appreciate that you like it, that I should go for it, but can you give me some advice? And when you ask, they'll give it to you. The next step is to talk to uh, 10 people, 10 friends and family members who, again, they might not give the best advice, but now you've narrowed it down to one project that you're working with and you describe the problem and solution and you ask each of them for advice, usually two or three pieces of advice from each. And after you talk to 10 people, you should, if you start hearing the same advice from different people, implement it along the way. So by the time you're on the 10th, it's probably a different project than at the beginning. And at the end of that step, you'll have a, a problem and solution that have has been improved. And you have, you'll probably have a better sense of what you like about it. And you'll feel more connected with it. The next step is to talk to Five people who have the problem and get them to tell you the problem in their words. Word for word, you got to write down. Oh, and a problem means it, you have to say an emotion that they feel that they don't like. That they, you know, if you think that they have a problem, but they don't realize it, that's kind of a tough sell. So you want to get them to tell you what the problem is in their words. And you will, at the end of this one, over and over again in class, people come back and they say, I really want to do this project now. It'll evolve a little bit in the stage, but the big thing is like you start getting empathy for the people and the pain that they feel. A lot of the words that they write or that they say that you write down will become sales copy. They'll say, you know, do you have this problem? Here's a solution for you. And it's, again, it's very simple. It's, you don't have to do a whole lot, but you'll really evolve your idea and your connection to it very well. The next step is to talk to 10 people who are closer to the field than you are. Now you start, and this exercise is a lot like talking to the 10 friends and family members. The difference is that you have to spend a little more time connecting to them because they're not just people in your world. You're probably gonna get more useful advice. And you're probably gonna start developing relationships with people in the field. And by the time you talk to the 10th person, there's a pretty good chance they will have recognized the names of some of, of the people you spoke to before. And they're gonna be much more helpful. And I recommend i recommend for the earlier stages, but definitely at this stage, end the conversation with two questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? And most of the time they say, no. Every now and then you'll get this gem that only someone in the field could have told you. And they'll share it with you because you were asking them for advice and they feel generous with you. The other question is, is there anyone in the field that you could put me in touch with that could help me with this? Again, most times, no. But sometimes they'll put you in touch with that perfect CEO or customer or first employee or funding source or whatever. And you start really getting connected. And that even if this person you're talking to now was like a cold lead, once they recommend you to someone, now you have a warm lead. And so that'll come in later. I wouldn't recommend talking to them just yet. So I realized that I've made a mistake here, <clears throat> that I'm going on too long describing the exercises. and. Yeah. If you describe a scale to someone who lives in a world where, I imagine you lived in a world where everyone to learn play to play the piano sat and listened to lectures, and then you came in and said, play scales, <laughs> it wouldn't make no sense to anyone. They'd be like, this is stupid. Scale, you you got to learn the theory. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I live in a world like that where, and so I've just described all these scales and ask any musician, what happens if you play a lot of scales and they'll tell you it's magic that they learn how to play music. But anyone who hasn't done the scales, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so I've, I've walked into a trap that I apologize for walking into. All that stuff is like, I, want, I something in me is like, how can I make this useful for someone so they could listen and go do it? But you can't. Right. It's it's a mistake to try to do that. I I apologize. <laughs> Although I really love talking about it. And people who've done it really love talking about their experiences because the experience is where it happens. Yeah. I'm giving people a way to get experience. And, you know, you, you know how I mentioned doing the exercise, uh, writing up the reflections? Mm-hmm. There's a guy who's he's posting his reflections online. If you go to anthemoftheadventurer.com, then you can see this guy, I think he's on exercise six now, and you can see his results in, like, as he's doing them. And he's just do- doing it publicly. He's making his, his reflections available, mm-hmm. and people can see what the
2: results are. Yeah, It's interesting because we, you know, we have a, a private social network, a mighty network uh, called our Listener Tribe, and we could probably potentially go and do this in there with everybody and, and you know, have people share.
6: Which is-
1: Yeah, I recommend it. Uh, pe- it's funny, in class, people are always saying, we want to do group exercise. Yeah. And everyone has to do their own project. They can work with each other. And then some groups, they'll stay the same the whole semester. Some groups will, some people will go from group to group. There's a lot you can learn from each other, even though you're doing totally different projects. If one's doing a service business that's in fashion and someone's doing some technology that's a product, the emotional and social part is very similar as they go through these stages and they can learn tons from each other.
2: Hmm. So one thing that you you talk about here um, that I think was, was interesting is sort of this idea of... Um, You know, you you talk about finances in a visual model, but then I think one of the things that really struck me was the things that you say about sort of resources, time and money, because I think that, you know, one of the things I've seen often is that people will use a lack of resources as an excuse when, you know, it's funny and often this is something that you'll see over and over in many of the books that have been written about entrepreneurship is that, the people who are incredibly resourceful, when they get resources, they lose that resourcefulness. And one, you know, how do you prevent that from happening? But what do you say to people who feel that they are resource constrained?
1: Well, you make getting the resource part of the project. Hmm. If you are able to, okay, if there's no way that your project can return to everyone involved, something that makes it worth their while, you got to work on that project until you can get to that stage. But if if the project is going to be mean if it's not going to be meaningful for someone you're going to have a tough time getting them involved but if it's going to be meaningful then you should be able to demonstrate to them and show to them and communicate to them that they're going to benefit from this and so they're going to want to do it and so if that means getting money or if that means getting access or if that means getting uh space or real estate whatever you got to figure out how to present to that person so that they say I want to do this and if you can't do that you got to keep working on that project or go to another project but if, if it's going to take a trillion dollars to do and it's going to return $10, you're probably going to have a hard time getting that trillion dollars. Uh-huh. But if it's going to kick off enough money to pay off investors, all right, make it part of the deal so that they get a return on their investment. Or if it's going to, if you want to, like right now, what my big project that my huge initiative is my podcast and the Leadership in the Environment podcast. And I want to get, the most influential people in the world to act on, to share their environmental values, act on them, and share the results so that people listening can say, oh, it's not just me. Someone else is doing this. Because right now, try to think of someone who's living sustainably, who's famous, like they don't exist. There's no one doing it. And I want to change that. So, why would someone who's, you know, if, if I get Oprah Winfrey on my show, why would Oprah Winfrey go without? I have to figure that out. I have to figure out that it's actually, well, I don't want to go into all the details, but I have a way to talk to people who are, you know, when I got the, the three-time global managing director of McKinsey, or the person with the most viewed TED talk of all time to be on my podcast, I talk to them before they come on to why it's going to benefit them right. in a way that I'm just, just, I'm just not spouting it. So they, they really enjoy it. So they come back for second episodes. Yeah.
6: So the access, I think, is one
1: resource, you know, do, do you have access to people who can do the thing that you need done or can, you know, access, I think, you know, money, time, real estate, access, things like that. Mm.
2: What have you noticed in your students in terms of uh, value shifts, you know, when it comes to age, you know, and the reason I ask this is because I think that. With the younger generation, I noticed they don't seem to value security as much or, you know, just talking to my parents about this last night and, you know, I, to them, the idea that I would value mobility more than security is such a bizarre concept. And I, I wonder being in an environment full of academics, what do you see uh, with younger people when it comes
1: to these sort of values around work? I'm going to give you an answer that I don't think has to do with now as, as opposed to any other mm-hmm. time they are out of touch with their values. They don't know what they really want. They think that they want, I mean, some things, obviously everyone wants like security and family. You know, there's some things that are the case that they anyone would know, but that's not particularly meaningful. That's like knowing you have hands. And that's not what people talk about with self-awareness. And they haven't, one of the things about school is that school tells you what subjects to take how to demonstrate, you know, how to get a good grade. You know, in college, you can choose a major somewhat, but you don't have that many choices. And then once you pick a major, you have a little bit of choice in classes compared to before, but up until I mean K to 12, you have virtually no choice. I mean, I could choose French as opposed to Spanish. I could choose a little bit, but very little. I couldn't choose when I went to school or how I would learn or anything like that. And so when everyone tells you what's important, you don't know what's important to yourself. And then when I ask them to do these projects, they often pick things that are un- irrelevant to them because they have no idea what's relevant to them. They haven't done something that draws these things out. And that's why they, they say, I didn't know I could learn these things. One of the things that they're learning is what they value and what they don't value. And, you know, it's easy to say, you know, I value freedom and I value family. Well, what happens when they're against each other? When your family wants you to do something, but you want to be free to do something else, which do you pick there? School keeps you from those yeah. things. This stuff, when you take initiative and you create the project, it forces you either to realize I don't like this and I want to move on to something else or, oh my God, I love this and I got to start getting rid of things in my life. And life gets really simple when you take initiative. People before they take initiative, they're like, oh, I have this, I have that. I have three different things I want to do. I have 10 different things I want to do. And boy, does our dog show culture in school, it's so, it surrounds us with the more things on your resume, the better. The more uh, in college, the more extracurriculars you do, the better. The more clubs that you're a member of, the better. Because the more stuff on your resume, the better. Look at successful people. Very rarely are they doing a million different things. They do usually one thing. You know, they have different realms of their life. So one professional thing, one family thing. But they really dedicate themselves to excellence in one area. And they put everything else off in order to do that thing. And that is, our culture promotes they don't think of it this way, but it's like being a dilettante and spreading yourself thin and um just doing as many different things as you can. And that is that is rarely a path to success by almost any measure, whether it's money or happiness or deep, meaningful relationships. This got me going. I mean, it's really it, it kills me that we teach people to just pursue shiny objects and not learn themselves my you know I, I saw you had um david allen recently yeah. and his book he has been a great mentor for me and when i first read his book uh getting things done i thought okay this is an interesting book but i met him and i said you know i th- i think i act on my priorities pretty well and so i didn't think your book was that useful i said it a little more politely and he said, yeah, everyone thinks it's about productivity and efficiency. That's because th- they put that on the cover because that's what sells books. But the book is really about freedom. It's about mental freedom. Mm-hmm. And it's about how if your mind is preoccupied with something, then you won't get, you, you you can't concentrate. Like if you, like we're we're talking right now, but if you're thinking that as soon as this call ends, you have to pick up the phone and call someone else, your mind is going to be preoccupied with that and you won't be able to pay attention yeah. to me. Or if you're an engineer working on some problem, you got some other problem in your head, you can't solve this one. And so he's got these great tools to give you mental freedom. I reread his book and I thought, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. My book is about, it's about passion. It's about, and it's actually the word did make it on the cover, but I'm not saying like find your passion, but you will unearth your passions. You'll get rid of these things that society has helped, has put on you to like distract you, not to distract you, but to, you know, to make you productive for them which is not necessarily rewarding for you. And the more that you do this stuff, the more that the passing fancies will, you'll just, you'll exhaust them. And you'll think like, oh, that that thing with the blockchain app, that was kind of cool, but that's not what, what I really want to do. I really want to do, you know, I don't know what, you know, in my case it was environmental leadership and the number of things that used to be amazing in my life, but don't measure up to this, that I now say, no time for that. It's it's hugely rewarding to look at something you used to love and realize it just doesn't measure up to this thing that is just a, a life passion. And this book is about unearth- describing these exercises. I can't convey what happens when you realize this is something that I will do until, and you know, my entire life, or until I'm done, and. If you do all the other tools out there, I would not have written the book if, and and developed these exercises in this progression, if there was a resource out there that I, I I'd come across that does that. But the stuff that's out there for entrepreneurship is generally it starts with like what's your idea and what's your team and like let's work with that, and you can do something that becomes very successful and you don't really care about. It's too late of a stage. It presumes that if you do it and you get money, that that's what you really wanted to do. And I've not I've not yet met the person who just wants to fill the bathtub with gold coins and just swim in it. The money's for something. <sighs> Amazing. Um, well, this has been
2: super, super eye opening and thought provoking. I, I love conversations like this because they make us think like, it's one of those conversations that I don't think you can get everything you put into it by listening to it once, which, you know, those are my favorite kinds. And now I kind of want to go back and reread the book now after having had this conversation with you. So I have one final question for you, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? It's,
1: you know, I can't help but go with passion. It's a passion that you, we all love things. And we often don't know it. As I said, society often, you know, what, what's successful in society is generally what's stable and keeps things going. And so, you know, finance and consulting and multinational corporations, they weren't, they, they're very stable and they keep going. They get you to do, they make it rewarding financially and with stability and security, do what they ask you to. That doesn't mean you'll really love it. When you meet someone who does what they love and they created it from scratch or from however they created it, and it, they did it because doing it revealed in them something that was probably always there. They always knew it was there. And once it came out, they realized, Oh my God, I can do this. This is what, this is what the world needs. This is what I will jump out of bed for. This is what I will do when the chips are down, when things fall apart. I will be there and make it work. That is unmistakable.
6: That you can't teach that,
1: but when you find it, you will do it. And, you know, I tried to create, I believe I have created steps to reach that from no matter where you are, even if you have no idea. And then, you know, the people that you know that will be in your life will also be people like that. I mean, you'll have like the, you know, when you buy a slice of pizza, it's not going to be someone who's like really into what they do, but the people that you really open up with and share your vulnerabilities with and help through thick and thin, they will be people often also like that. And you will be unmistakable to each other.
2: Hmm. Amazing. Well, uh I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything else that you're up to?
1: Everything is at joshuaspodek.com and in the upper right corner there's the podcast the Leadership in the Environment podcast. There's the books, so there's Leadership Step by Step, which is the first one, and then the most recent one, Initiative. Then I po- I post on my blog every day, so there's not yet 4000, something like 3500 posts. Oh. Uh, there's a lot there. And also up there is contact connect. So if you click there, then you can send me an email. And if you have further questions, I'm happy to answer. And the social media stuff is all linked to from there too. Awesome. And for
2: everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are
4: meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration